Welcome to another episode of Not Your Average Feminist, a podcast for feminists of the future. Today we are not your average feminists, but tomorrow we will be. I'm Christina. I'm Sarah. And I'm Amanda. All right, everyone. Thanks for joining us for another episode of the Not Your Average Feminist podcast. I'm super excited about this episode because we have the lovely Gabriella Hoffman on with us. Um, a couple of weeks ago, we did our first episode about the Second Amendment, and I said it, we said at the time that this was not going to be the last time we talk about this subject, and I wasn't kidding. And so today we have um, Gabriella on. She, I, I first knew her. Um, as kind of like a Second Amendment activist, she's a prolific writer, and she, um, I started noticing her writing on this topic a couple of years ago. Um, but just to give you guys a little bit more of a formal bio, um, Gabriella Hoffman is a media strategist based in the D.C. metro area. In addition to hosting the podcast District of Conservation, Gabriella is a prolific writer whose work has been published in the Bristol Herald Courier, Field and Stream, Outdoor Life, Richmond Times Dispatch, The Resurgent, Sporting Classics Daily, TakeMeFishing.org, The Hill, TownHall.com, Verily Magazine, The Washington Times, and Yahoo News. Oh my goodness, you've been everywhere. <laughs> um, so welcome to the podcast, Gabriella. I am so excited to enter the Not yeah, Your so Average we're super psyched zone. to have you. Um, and very, I guess, and excited. I should also mention um, at the top uh, that it's Christina and I are here today. Sarah um, had to take the, the evening off, um, so we will be missing her. But um, I just wanted to dive right in and just um, have you kind of – I kept your bio a little bit short because I wanted you to talk about yourself. <laughs> well, no, Please no, do. no, because I want you to kind long. of introduce yourself <laughs> to our audience and, and start by um, – Sure. Uh, let's just talking about like where you're from, um, how you kind of got into the work that you're doing. Just give us a little background. Yeah, so I am a conservative. I want to make that very clear uh, because some people think that I divorce my politics from my work in the Second Amendment and conservation. I still am very conservative. Mm -hmm. I just, not, I don't camouflage my work or my political beliefs. But I try to mm -hmm. imply that I'm conservative with my activism in these other sectors, which I think we can do yeah. and we should do and, and, and make sure that um, conservatives can be in other industries as a whole. So mm -hmm. uh, I am a conservative, political conservative, and I came to Washington, D.C., oh, gosh, it's been about seven years in June. I graduated from UC San Diego, where I was a campus activist. I wrote mm -hmm. for my conservative paper, the California Review. And then I did a barrage of internships, ranging from uh, working at the Reagan Ranch Center in Santa Barbara, which was my first ever internship in summer 2010. It was yeah. amazing. I loved it. And as someone who fangirls over Ronald Reagan because my parents came here to this country from Soviet Lithuania uh, at the time of his midway through his second uh, term in office. So I have a special place in my heart for him because he welcomed my parents to this country when they were fleeing. Uh, crazy political persecution. And I've always been conservative for as long as I could remember. And not because I went about it just to please my parents. I actually tried to test the theory of conservatism, make sure that my views were in sync with my thinking. And I actually graduated more conservative from college than I entered, <laughs> which is odd because I was <laughs> which, because I was pretty conservative entering UC San Diego. But I think just because I saw a lot of instances of bias firsthand, it just 
made me be like, I want to be an independent thinker. And I guess being a conservative was that at the time and or libertarian or as long as you were not politically left, you were perceived as an independent thinker. But I chose to incline myself still to conservatism. So I did a lot of internships and uh, as a media strategist, I was able, I didn't really have a formal path to working in media. I've done a lot of writing over the years, as you mentioned, um, mostly political op-ed writing. And I do a lot of copywriting and copy editing now on top of helping clients write good op-eds. Um, I make sure that they write the op-eds <laughs> and I edit it because I don't like people who hire ghostwriters for op-eds. <laughs> because, yeah. because if you want to be yeah. a communicator, you must know how to write. That's essential. You just need a consultant like me or someone who works yeah. in media to polish your work, not do it for you, because that's not what communicators do. So I worked in various different internships. I did a social media internship with Ann and Fella McElhaney, yeah. who made that documentary about Kermit Gosnell, the abortionist, mm-hmm. uh, when they were doing a lot of environmental stuff. I also uh, worked for the Media Research Center when I was first in D.C. It was my first internship on the East coast. And that was summer of 2012 where I was a reporting intern on Capitol Hill. So I had so much, and I worked on um, a local radio station on the 1170 AM station KCBQ, which I believe is still a station, but my Mm. former boss doesn't have a station there anymore, but I worked for the Rick Amata show when he had a show on AM. Yeah. AM radio there. And I worked for him for about two years and uh, it was a really good experience to just, have a lot of overlap of media experiences, digital, my first foray into digital, uh, again, with Ann and Fellum in 2011, in the summer, working a remote internship, and then doing radio concurrently with my studies, and uh, then graduating to do a media career, and then on top of that, doing a little bit of column writing, and exposing the campus left at UC San Diego, so I did a lot in my collegiate career, and I did a little bit in my high school career. Uh, I had a really great English teacher, Mrs. Sue Willette. I don't know if she's still around. I think she's still young enough to be around. But she was she was really whimsical, and she made the English language and rhetoric and syntax and diction just so attractive in a way that no one else, I think, could have. So she captivated my interest in the English language and writing. And I think my love of writing was born from there about, goodness, it's maybe 12, 13 years since that uh, freshman year of high school. (laughs) Okay, we'll we'll check it later. I'm doing my math wrong. We'll check it later. Well, actually, I take that back. No, 10 years because I entered, no, that's college. I'm sorry, entrance of college. Backtrack, sorry. 2015, I entered high school. That seems like forever ago. Oh, my gosh. So I was like 14 years ago when I developed my love of writing. There we go. Back to back to the basics there. Uh, but yeah, but yeah, it's it just feels like forever ago, and and it's just so much has improved. I would say that I was not the best writer when I first started, or the best communicator, and that happens with everyone. I don't think you're really born a communicator. You have to re- you you may have the potential, but if you're not polished and you don't learn the craft and the rules and and the metrics and the specifications, you really cannot excel as a yeah. writer or even by extension uh, as a communicator. So I had to, I tell people, and I've written on my business blog, uh, for people who are interested, I say like, don't expect shortcuts when becoming a communicator. You really do have to put the work in. You have to subject yourself to criticism. You have to change your writing style. You have to read more books. You have to consult people, be subject to editorial review, get a lot of rejections. So I, I, I'm really honest with people. If if I 
comment about op-ed writing or just general commentary writing or even uh, news writing. I tell people it takes a long time and it's a highly saturated industry. And if you don't focus on yeah. something else other than writing, you yeah. can't make oh, a living. I've been there. I've been there. I had a short <laughs> so, career as like a freelance writer several yeah. years ago when I first came to DC. It's hard. It's really oh my hard. Gosh. It is. Yeah. It absolutely is, but it's not impossible mm -hmm. if you have the willpower to do it, if you work hard, mm -hmm. if you're motivated, you have a unique bent. Uh, the reason why I feel like a lot of people have seen me make waves a lot and, and have my bylines in different places is because of the unique perspective I add. I, it, it doesn't hurt that I have a first-generation American experience. Mm -hmm. I don't really milk that. I don't want to, but uh, people always ask me, could you please parallel your pa parents' experiences and your upbringing growing up with yeah. them to political affairs when appropriate? And I say, yes, that's that's fine. And then with my foray mm -hmm. into freelance outdoor writing, which I do make a little bit of money with, but I don't rely on that. I, consulting is my largest revenue generator, but I don't do it simply just to generate revenue. Mm -hmm. I, I like it because I like to write and to have people react and, and to involve people in the interview process, people who normally would never be approached by a media outlet yeah. and have their perspective communicated uh, through the various pieces that I do. So it's just, yeah, there, there's a lot to the craft. It's not impossible. And I think with the rise of digital publications, I mean, sadly, with the demise of print publications, you do see an uptick in people exploring digital mediums and, and new blogs and new platforms out there for people to get what, involved so with, but it is becoming a very saturated place. kind of got you into writing or talking about second amendment issues. Um, cause that's, that, that is really where like you kind of first popped on my radar is when, um, I was involved in gun rights activism and I saw a lot of your writing on the subject. And for me, yeah. you became like, just in my mind, you became like, yeah. Oh, she's that girl that writes a lot about gun issues. And like, I share her stuff all the time. <laughs> No, that was really nice of you to share it at the time. I was really grateful for that exposure. And I mean, there's so many of us, there are a few of mm -hmm. us, and I don't write as much on the topic as I'd like to. I would say the best person out there oh, right yeah, now okay. who writes on this is Stephen Gutowski. I will perfectly be honest. He is a workhorse when it comes to this issue. And I'm actually going to have him on my outdoor podcast because mm -hmm. firearms relate to conservation with excise taxes and all that. So it's, it's perfectly relevant to have someone like him come on and talk about the media and reporting and accuracy. But uh, it's an in issue that interested me much like conservative politics, just because mm -hmm. it's an issue that's grossly misunderstood. A lot of inaccuracy is reported on it. I mean, especially in wake of this tragic yeah. terrorist attack in New Zealand, you, you guys have probably seen all the tweets and all the calls mm -hmm. for applying the same standards in New Zealand to the United States. And there we're two very different countries. I mean, it's very tragic and it's always tragic here in the United States when these horrific events happen. And I think more gun owners and gun rights mm. proponents are doing a better job of being public about this. I mean, we can sympathize with the victims, but we can also say that we don't need to relinquish our rights just because of the few evil wrongdoing criminal people who use firearms. And I think you can hold both positions. But just over the years, I think the media's characterizations lumping in criminals yeah. with law-abiding gun owners is a gross misjustice, and it, it irks me so much. And and I'm not going to do anything violent or act on any violent impulses, but I think I can channel that frustration through my writing, which I've done in various different publications and interviewing people in the industry and 
talking to the folks in the industry. And as I got my formative start in politics, I was able to cross over into the firearms industry. And I think a lot of people have their assumptions about it because they don't know what it is. They don't know that that gun manufacturers do not cater their marketing to criminals, mm-hmm. kind of like what that Supreme Court case argued recent, or the, I'm sorry, the Connecticut Supreme Court case ruled in terms of those oh, right, trying to right. sue Remington for the for the misdeeds and, and evil actions of the kid who didn't even own it. It was his mother's yeah. that he stole it, and then yeah, enacted yeah. all that horror to those yeah. poor kids at St. Louis Elementary. Yeah, yeah, the case where it it gives a precedent to allow people to sue companies for wrongdoing Mm -hmm. committed on people who abuse their products, which would be very dangerous uh, to apply to cars, to apply to, I mean, goodness, drugs. I mean, how many people will sue pharmaceuticals? I mean, they probably should be sued given the fact that they knew about opiate stuff. But but I, I think this creates a really big opening, unfortunately, to sue you could sue oil and gas manufacturers for something they didn't do you could sue grocers you could sue farms you can sue these big corporations who had nothing to do with wrongdoing unless it was an individual who worked for them or someone who may have used a product of theirs but it has no direct ties but uh and it just all these various different aspects of people not reporting the various things and not urging accuracy and not urging people to study the nomenclature we see on social media all the time People on the left especially say, oh my gosh, look at these noobs and look at these people. Try to Politicians try to talk about tech. They have no idea what the heck they're talking about. How can they regulate Maybe our industry? Same thing. And we in the gun yeah. industry or we in the... Ex- yeah, ex- so it's, it's a, a, a true double standard as to what they believe should be regulated and they call for expertise opinion. But if you have no clue about guns, if you don't know the nomenclature d- discerning between a semi-automatic handgun or semi-automatic rifle, which is 90%, at least 90% of all firearms mm-hmm. out there for the public to, yeah, if not more, for the public to purchase, only a small fraction is what you call fully automatic. And most of those are regulated very harshly where it's almost impossible to access it unless you go through the hurdles to do it or if you're a collector or something of that nature. People who do, let's say, like that crazy shooter in Las Vegas, obtain bump stocks, most people don't use bump stocks. Mm-hmm. I've never heard of any friends of mine using that. So they they cherry pick these rare instances of people abusing various gun parts or falsely claiming that a AR-15 uh, Armalite rifle is an assault weapon that needs to be banned. And, and when they do that, they're projecting their ignorance. They're projecting that they have no authority to opine on the subject or to regulate because it's going to have serious consequences. When you misidentify a firearm or various parts associated with a firearm, you're putting the law-abiding population, which is the majority of this population, in great jeopardy and danger because they're going to be penalized for the wrongdoing of people who had nothing to do with Mm -hmm. the industry, just bad apples. That happens with everything. More people die from car crashes. More people now, I think, die from opioid overdoses and alcohol. Uh, There's so much more, and and that doesn't negate people who are Mm -hmm. victims of homicides or or vicious murders. Uh, It just means that there's other things that kill people too. So if you were to ban firearms incrementally, first they're going to start with an AR-15. In various different states, in Maryland, for instance, they're deliberating a ban Mm -hmm. to a bill to ban long guns, which are most shotguns and most rifles. And Maryland is a very uh, hunting 
friendly state. So I can imagine a lot of the people on the Eastern shore would not be too happy with uh, Annapolis banning that. And and even people in Western Maryland and on the outskirts of uh, the DC suburbs. So you see bills across the country that not only go after so-called assault weapons, which are actually semi-automatic AR 15s or perceived to be assault weapons like that, but they're not. Uh, And then you want to see it extend to banning shotguns and other types of associated parts or guns that may have cosmetic features that look very scary, but uh, they're for commercial mm-hmm. use. They're not military-grade weapons or weapons of war, as as the, the verbiage we're seeing oh, out I there on Twitter. Today, because yeah. I think it was Joe Scarborough who said that, yeah, yeah, he said that um, the Air 15 is a weapon of war, a, war, a weapon of war, excuse me, and it needs to be taken out of the public. It has no place there. And others were comparing it to a similar model which actually is a perceived weapon of war. It's a decommissioned, I think um, there's like an M16. I've held a decommissioned one where it's a very heavy gun. I understand why that's a military grade weapon. There's another one like M14, which is also a higher military grade weapon. But the Air 15 was specifically designed. You don't need to be a historian or a rocket science to know that it's designed for the market, for people to go target shooting, for those especially with uh, disabilities. I have a lot of friends um, who claim that they are either wheelchair bound or I'm not claim, excuse me. Uh, they may have a disability. Some of my friends who are wheelchair bound use an AR 15 mm-hmm. when hunting because it affords them greater precision when they're trying to target certain wildlife. A lot of women without disabilities, especially love this gun. As of a few years ago, it was reported that the AR 15 is a very popular gun yeah. among women for self-defense purposes for home defense, especially and I think CVS had something in 2017 about this as well. I, I think I tweeted a link about it uh, today. And there's just so much misinformation and there's a lot of facts coming out there that most people, if you talk to them about banning certain things, they're actually against it. Uh, a lot of the perceptions about gun ownership are contorted and misconstrued. And I think one great outlet, someone who I will source, I mean, they're not perfect, but I was really impressed having worked with them was uh, the quality of product that Time oh, Magazine yeah. has been were producing you, on Gun Magazine. Or Gun, gun yeah, I remember seeing that. Well, um, I was, yeah. We'll I was have one to of the throw that in the show notes. Yeah, I was one of the... Yeah. Yeah. So I think they did a really impressive job with that magazine cover, examining, obviously, pro-Second Amendment and then very anti-Second Amendment, and then people kind of mm-hmm. unsure of where their positions lie, but they weren't very woolly against the second amendment, but they had some concerns. So it was a a wide spectrum of views on gun ownership Mm -hmm. that really reflects how Americans feel. And it sparked a lot of conversations. Even people who were on, who were sympathetic more to gun control talked with some pro second amendment folks and were like, you know, I didn't think of this. Maybe I have to reevaluate this. And it sparked a lot of conversation there. And they posted a article about uh, the NRA having involvement in uh, target Mm -hmm target shooting sports teams in high schools. And it was really well done, pretty fair. I didn't see anything wrong with the piece, but I think they and a few others, just very few, unfortunately, in the media, in the media are doing a good job of getting people who partake mm-hmm. in shooting sports who are law-abiding, which is the majority. That's what we want to emphasize. And, and having them comment about their lifestyle and, and opening people up to this other view outside of the Beltway, outside of the Acela Corridor, outside of Los Angeles and other metropolises that people, this is a common thing for people. It's been part of the threat of this country to have guns for self-defense, to have guns for hunting, 
mm-hmm. and other preventative protective means just because we can have we have that luxury in this country because it's enshrined in the constitution but also it's nobody's business to tell law-abiding people how many guns they should right. own one kind of gun as long so, as it's within the parameters oh sorry i just of legality. Jump in. um and uh because you were just talking about no, no, misconceptions out there about gun ownership and so i want to i want to throw it to christina real quick for this next question because i think you're yes. kind of like dancing around it a little bit so i want to get her in to ask um this next question and no then problem. we can keep going Sure. Yeah. So um, one of the big things, like I know Amanda and I have talked about um, when it comes to Second Amendment activism, women aren't necessarily fully represented on a national level. So you have like the the one or two really big names, you know, the Danas, I would say even like a, an Emily Miller being up there. Sure. Um, but most people think of men who are out there fighting for the Second Amendment. Do you see that this is going to change the perceptional change anytime soon? I think so, because I've seen things locally in Virginia and a lot of these people, and they're primarily men, and they do a good job, but I feel like a problem they're going to encounter is they like to hog a lot of the efforts in, in certain groups statewide where they want you to pay into a fee, do this, and you can't really have any leadership role in certain gun groups. Uh, I think there are more female representatives coming up uh, beyond Dana Lash, who's awesome, and a few others. Uh, there's Julie Golub, who's a competitive shooter. Uh, there are lots of target shooters who are high school level, college level ladies who are rising the ranks and starting to maybe have more involvement. There is rape survivor and Second Amendment advocate Shana Rivas Lopez, who yeah. is phenomenal. I hope you guys could interview her one day. She was twice sexually assaulted, and in spite of those unfortunate events, she really has opened her eyes to how self defense can really protect women in vulnerable positions. And she's wonderful. I, I, I look up to her and, and, you know, she's younger than me, but I really am inspired by her story of perseverance. I think Kimberly Corbin, uh, the sexual assault survivor is awesome too. And she comes about it differently. She talks more so about uh, combating sexual assault. And while all the while we'll talk about second amendment issues, if it's brought up to her, So you see all these women starting to pop up and tell their stories or create companies or go on the news or yeah, perhaps. And I think, sorry, not to jump in, no, but no, I, you're fine. I think like there has been a movement in the last few years of like kind of changing the face of women and gun ownership and just like gun ownership is a woman's issue. The second amendment is a women's issue. Like Amen. women need to defend themselves as much as anyone else. And so it's not just like men out there in their pickup trucks you know, on dirt roads, like who wants to go hunting or, or whatever the case is. Um, and more and more women are, are buying firearms. And I think the stats bear that out too, which again, we'll yes. definitely put in the show notes, but um, there are a lot of statistics out there about the rise of, of gun ownership among women in, in, in America. Absolutely. Yeah. You'll see a lot of more female hunters, mm-hmm. bow hunters. You see a lot of more women buying handguns. Uh, like I said, AR-15s are still a popular yeah. choice among women. And I think the market is changing where you're going to see a lot more female influencers, good influencers, not the uh, gun bunny types. I think yeah. a lot of the people in the industry are realizing that's not a way to market to women or make them feel welcomed. There's still some challenges, of course, not so much because of sexism or anything. It's just a, a, perhaps not enough of women perspectives mm-hmm. out there, perhaps influencing those decisions. But believe it or not, there are a lot of women I have met who are executives, VPs, 
uh, presidents or, or CEOs of the various hunting and gun type companies or manufacturers. I've met a lot of women who are dictating policy in those various different spheres. And it's really awesome. That does exist more so than in politics. I've been very impressed seeing that. That's awesome. Um, so just to take that and pivot a little bit towards the, the political stuff. Um, Mm -hmm. So one of the things I think about a lot when the Second Amendment comes up or the gun control debate surfaces is that this, like, and, and you can tell me if you think I'm wrong, but I feel like this is one of those issues where both sides of the debate just constantly talk past each other. Like, they're never going to see eye to eye. A gun control supporter and a Second Amendment supporter can look at the same data, same story or whatever, um, and walk away with completely different conclusions. Do you, do you, is that kind of your experience too? Do you see that? And do you think there are any areas in which both sides of the debate could or should come together? It can be frustrating talking to people who support gun control. Mm-hmm. I think a way to really bridge the gap is to have a sit down experience. I think, like I said, the Time Magazine effort was perhaps one of the first good steps, but we really didn't have that ability to sit down with people and talk We just were able to have our various different stories converge and you heard different perspectives. I'm happy to sit down with anyone who purports and believes in gun control. And I even offer people if they want and if they're not dangerous to themselves or to others Mm -hmm. to go to the range to learn firsthand what true gun safety is not the the type of gun safety confiscatory type that we hear that uh, the Mm -hmm. gun control folks and, and those on the left like to purport. Mm -hmm. Uh, but I think just showing them what is entailed in that it's not an inanimate object. It's a person who controls Mm -hmm. that tool in question and real, I mean, they don't have to become a shooting enthusiast. They don't have to love the second amendment, but I think demonstrating to them that we're very safe. We follow the rules. We're very keen on safety really can open a lot of these people's eyes because they just don't know. Where- yeah, it's almost like it's almost like a lot of gun control supporters I come across are feel the way that they feel just because and I don't mean this to sound bad or whatever, but because I just think they're scared of it and they're scared there's of what they fear. don't know. Yeah, there's yes. a fear of what you don't know. Yeah, I, I believe a lot of their frustration because you talk to anyone, gun supporter, gun gun rights supporter, or gun control supporter. I think where we agree is like we don't want any more mass shootings. That's a pretty unified position that most people agree. We have very different solutions as to how to stop that. I think gun rights supporters have a proactive solution to that where we believe that you have to enforce existing law. You have to point out the failures of governmental structures, let's say like an FBI and NICS system, where a lot of people would be criminals fall through the cracks and somehow are able to obtain guns. That's a failure mm-hmm. of the government. That's not a failure of a gun manufacturer or law-abiding gun owners. And so if they were, I don't think they know that that's what happens. They're just fed these lies, unfortunately, that if you ban a certain type of firearm, you solve all your problems. That's not how you do it. To truly engage with people, you have to, and they don't, a lot of them sadly are not really willing to learn what entails a firearm, the various different parts, uh, how it all operates, what the process excuse me, is to obtain for a permit. They don't know that existing law already prohibits and roots out most criminals, if not all criminals, from possessing a firearm or even obtaining a permit to conceal carry or open carry. Mm -hmm. Uh, In Virginia, some claim it's very lax. I don't think it's very lax. I think it's basic and fine. 
which makes it attractive for people fleeing gun control states to come to Virginia and be able to apply for their permits. But uh, some states complain that Virginia is too lax because we don't do a strict enough thing. But the basic laws in place already have a process of elimination thing where if you're uh, in, if you have a drug possession in your record, domestic abuse, uh, various different other criminal charges already on your record, you're already barred from purchasing a firearm. And if you were, if you have those indictments on your record and you were to purchase a gun or somehow obtain a gun by illegal means, you're committing a criminal act. And I don't think these folks sadly are explained that they're only fed one view. And I'm happy to hear, I've heard the arguments for gun control. I understand. I've had family members impacted by tragic events, not from guns, but by cars. My grandfather was killed by a very reckless old man who should not have been driving a car. Oh, wow. Yeah, in uh, 2013 in California in the Santa Monica farmer's market crash. And I learned then and there you cannot sue the car manufacturer for abusing the product and doing a hit and run and then hitting people including my grandfather which led to his death and all of us have tragedies and and no tragedy is greater than another and i think everyone can take away from those experiences and you see uh let's say like the some parkland fathers and parents who are conservative and for second amendment rights you see uh andrew pollock is one you also see ryan petty who in light of their children being massacred to death they were like, we wish we would have had an adept security officer shoot back at the killer yeah. so our children would be alive. So there are a lot of perspectives that are shielded off. It's, and those two have very compelling perspectives because uh, in, in light of the tragedy of losing their children, they were able to come about obviously stronger, but recognize that you want good people with guns to mm-hmm. fend off. To, to meet their match with evil people who have guns. Yeah, and it's interesting because I know people too who have been involved um, in gun-related violent crimes. Yeah. And, and you know, I'm thinking of two friends, or two people actually right now, and one of them came out of it a ardent gun control supporter, and the other one, it only solidified his gun rights and wow. like the Second Amendment. Um, and so it's just interesting to see how – two people can kind of go through similar things and then come out of it with completely different views. Yeah, absolutely. And it will certainly affect people differently. Some are just very set in their ways. Mm -hmm. I think we will see more people become pro second amendment rather than revert to or become anti second amendment. Because I think again, as education gets out there and people actually go to a range or just learn about it from a cop or military personnel who can tell you all about why it's essential to have private gun ownership. Uh, Like I said, a gun range will happily talk to people as long as your intent is not malicious or to trap them into things. But if people who are just not sure what the heck is entailed with gun ownership, what gun safety is, what a gun range experience is going to the gun gun range or going to a safe setting with an expert is a perfect way to enlighten yourself And I'm not saying this simply because I firmly believe in the Second Amendment. I have my set ways. But I even explain to people, friends of mine or acquaintances who may not be on the same page as me, I explain to them, like, here are some serious consequences that'll happen. And then I break down, I say, well, what if if this were to subtract from, let's say, people in minority communities, which is what universal background checks do because it makes it more expensive for people to go through the background check process system when already background check uh, things are already in place. Mm-hmm. And, or I talk about to them, I said, well, why should, wouldn't this make it harder for women who are domestic survivor or domestic abuse survivors to 
obtain firearms or obtain a permit, which is what the UBC bill that was just passed, I think HR eight would have done as well. Uh, And so I explained to people situationally, I say, well, this is a consequence that could happen as a result of this bill. Don't you think that would be a little problematic? And they're like, yeah, I didn't think of it like this. But if you relate it to real world experiences and and say that it'll subtract from everyone's ability to protect themselves, I think many people will be at least ambivalent and maybe sympathetic, but not inclining themselves to the disarmament argument. And it's just a matter of demystifying what goes on and and, and I, yeah, explaining it. And again, it doesn't mean they have to become a gun toting fanatic by no means. I just think it's a, it's a matter of uh, climbing down from their ivory towers or getting outside of the city and learning that a lot of people in more rural or more areas rely on having this kind of pr- means of protection. Mm-hmm. Uh, and some people in the city too. I hate that it's divided along those urban uh, mm-hmm. rural divides because I have a lot of friends who are city dwelling who live within city limits or just outside of a city who own guns and, and have um, ability to conceal carry too. And yeah, all of us know people who have, uh, I have two female or I have a friend and then an acquaintance who've both uh, fended off an attack either by shooting back at a would be attacker. I have, there's an acquaintance I have who did that and she made the news in, in uh, Louisville, Kentucky. So she, she fought back and was thankfully not able to, to be assaulted by this crazy lunatic who attacked her in a parking lot. He was ready to enact horrible crimes onto her and she shot him in the throat and, and, wow. uh, and survived. Yeah. I mean, scarred, obviously it's an emotional toll when you're attacked mm-hmm. and almost violated or violated by a creep like this. But, uh, she shot back. And then I have another friend who used an AR 15. Uh, I believe someone tried to break into her home and she had and made a warning shot and the guy went away. Wow. So, and there's so many instances wow. across the news of everyone uh, grandmas, uh, young women, uh, military people, mothers. It, it really, I mean, it doesn't yeah. even really matter who you are or what kind of yeah. like of group you fall into. Like this really does cut across like every yes. demographic. It isn't. No. Yeah, it isn't for. It isn't just for white people. It isn't just for uh, people who look a certain way. It's for everyone. And I think we do have to work on that image a little bit. But there are people. Uh, like Maj Torre and others who do a lot of outreach in urban outposts uh, who talk about that and, and try to get those in those communities really to open their eyes to being exploited by a lot of people in the disarmament crowd who say that they can't defend themselves. And there are just so many different ways people are outreaching. And I think there's even outreach uh, for those who may identify as LBGT, LBGTQ people in, in those uh groups as well, especially after the Pulse nightclubs. Yeah, the pink, there's plenty of people to appeal to anyone. If you're gay, you're Catholic, I think there's even going to be an effort now with um, more Muslims to be uh, learning how to properly use firearms. I think a lot of Jewish individuals in America, especially after that tragic Pittsburgh synagogue shooting, a lot of people who are Jewish indicated that they plan to take more firearms courses. And a lot of people signed up to, to do that too. So any persecuted group or any group that is under attack is going to look for ways to defend themselves. And a lot of them are starting to look to firearms. Now, a few minutes ago, you brought up um, HRA and how the House had passed it. Um, In regards to just generally Second Amendment rights and pieces of legislation, Mm -hmm. is there any laws that you would like to see overturned or changed? Something that you feel is prohibiting your Second Amendment right? Oh my gosh. Um, I know (laughs) I have my opinion about it. um, (laughs) Goodness gracious. Um, that's a loaded question, but I'll do my best to answer. In terms of anything, 
in terms of an overhauling, I would like to see national concealed carry reciprocity. I have heard this. I'm not sure exactly how truthful this is, but with my having a Virginia concealed handgun permit, even if I'm not in possession of my gun, if I were to drive across in Maryland and get pulled over by a cop, I've heard from friends who've held back from getting their permit. You cannot do that. That, uh, you cannot, if you get pulled over, you're going to get accosted, even if you're not in possession of your gun, just because you have the permit. I don't, I don't know if that's true. My husband was a Maryland police officer, um, but I know the firearms, having the firearms is Oh, of course, yeah. Um, but if, but yeah. maybe my friend is an outlier case, but he had told me you'll get accosted. And maybe this was an old rule in like 10 years ago or so. I'm not sure if it's changed. I haven't gotten pulled over in Maryland, so I don't know exactly the truth to this. I wasn't accosted. I got pulled over. Uh, for nothing of my wrong, uh, anything, nothing that I did wrong. It was just after that stupid new rule about not driving 60 or 65 in the left lane off 66. Stupid rule. It was early in the morning. I was driving at speed limit, but this female cop was on my case. But I was, I was surprised she didn't ask me about my concealed handgun permit here in Virginia. So she just gave me a warning. I didn't get a ticket. But, um, but I, I do think, but I do think, I mean, independent of those traffic laws, because I'd, I don't know how accurate that is. That's just what one friend had told me. And if it's not true, that's good too. But I think um, national concealed carry reciprocity would be good. And I understand some states would sue to challenge that and make sure they don't have that. But it would make it so much easier to travel and carry more in Maryland or Washington, D.C. And I believe we had a reciprocity agreement with Pennsylvania overturned because the attorney general thought our rules were too lax. Um, Yeah, that was last year. And I'm like, oh, I want to be able to like do this more and not be a criminal if I carry in these states. So this actually pivots right into my next question for you then. So as somebody who is a Second Amendment activist, do you feel that the last two years were a major legislative letdown uh, with the Republican-controlled House and not necessarily a Republican majority Senate? They didn't have the votes to pass reciprocity. Nothing was really done to advance our Second Amendment freedoms. Yeah, we, we have the president that would fully sign any piece of like pro-gun legislation right. that hit his desk. Um, but has this made you pivot and rethink how you plan on moving forward? Yeah, I think another piece of legislation we should have passed, no questions asked, was the Hearing Protection Act, which would yes. have uh, changed how silencers are processed, uh, getting rid of that tax, that $200 tax, and those long wait times to obtain it especially because there are a lot of added health benefits to a silencer. It, it, it encourages improved uh, shooting experience. It has less noise pollution. It's a lot more comfortable to shoot with. You have greater precision. And I was disappointed they did not pass that. I just don't think even Republic, a lot of Republicans are educated on those issues as well. And I think in the House, we just had a not so, such a big supermajority. And the Senate, we just barely had any majority. I think it was 51, 52. Uh, so it was impossible numerically, I think to pass that. Uh, And there were a few, like I said, reciprocity. And then I think there was another bill that could have drastically improved things. But again, the numbers were just not there. And I know they keep saying, well, if you elect more of us, we'll be able to do this. And I mean, they had both of the, they could have easily passed the hearing protection act. I think even with the slim majorities in both chambers, but I just think they weren't interested or you had Republicans who were squishy on the gun rights issue or that issue because they think it's a James Bond and it's for like a tool and whatever. it's lethal. Yeah. And yeah. Yeah. There's, yeah. Even Republicans were falling prey to that argument, which is foolish. Uh, 
I mean, I know it was, it was truly disappointing when conciliatory reciprocity passed in the House and it, had, it passed by like an overwhelming yeah. majority. The fact that sent the Senate, and I mean, knowing that they didn't have the votes, but the Senate didn't even decide to ho- like hold a vote mm-hmm. on it, going into midterm elections with some of these seats that they could have had um, some of these um, senators that were up for re-election get their you know, get their stance on it so their constituents know what they're voting for. So in some of these states that may have lax concealed carry or like lax like yeah. reciprocity laws or lax just concealed carry laws. Yeah. They, I mean, if they were voting no on a piece of legislation like that, then you can say like you from the state of Missouri, your laws are this yeah. and you should have been voting yes for this instead of voting no because it doesn't affect your state. Things like that, which they didn't even bother to take up in the Senate. Yeah, I think... They just, a lot of them, I don't know if it was timidity or fear or just no interest in the issue or forgetting why they were elected in the first place. I think there were a lot of new members, uh, a lot of the crop of the new members that were elected seemed to be more cognizant of that. I think uh, uh, most of the Republican senators supported John Cornyn and Ted Cruz's uh, bill for uh, something related to reciprocity. It wasn't national concealed carry reciprocity, but it was something along those lines, another uh, similarly oriented bill, but it had a lot of, most of the senators were co-sponsors, which was unheard of. So it goes to show that they, I think they're more in line with second amendment stuff. I don't know if the red flag bill that's supported by Senator Rubio has gotten any consideration, but I know they were mulling that and that would be bad in its current standing because it doesn't re- respect yeah. uh, due process rights. Uh, but I think perhaps in some instances they're a little more unified. I'm not sure in the House if they are just because they're in the minority. So I haven't been able to study that closely. I know for the Senate, of course, they seem to be more unified on most. Uh, But again, I'm worried about the red flag law bill. If they were to deliberate that, some of them would jump onto that. So we don't know exactly um, until they appetite to legislate on this right now, despite despite all the angst you see in the media or on Twitter and social media of, of, uh, of both yep. sides. Um, there's yeah. not a whole lot of movement. I mean, I know we just, we mentioned the house just passed those two bills a couple of weeks ago. Um, but it's not like the mm-hmm. Senate. Well, those will die in the Senate. No, hopefully. they're not going to get signed. And they won't get and, signed by and the president. To be honest, I, don't, like, I don't think so. For a Democrat controlled no, no. house, those bills, even though I think we all might oppose them, we're not as extreme as like you might oh. expect um, gun control bills to be right now. Except for maybe eleven twelve, huh. I know that is very problematic. But I mean, you would expect you would have yeah, expected that like the them to be valve. pushing mm-hmm. a assault weapons ban or like voting on that or something like more more hardcore, um, right? I mean, the UB uh, HR eight was pretty extreme too. UBC is a very I mean, extreme position, just because they use this fake statistic. Yeah, yeah. So universal background checks. So there's a background check system in place already in the United mm-hmm. States. It's not a perfect system. It's imperfect, of course. But for the most part, it does its job in preventing criminals or would-be criminals from obtaining firearms. What you notice in terms of the co-sponsors, if I'm not mistaken, a lot of those so-called moderate mm-hmm. Democrats who were elected in swing districts that were previously held by Republicans voted for this bill under the auspices that they're moderate. So if you look back and see who some of those co-sponsors are, you do see some of these more Democrat people. They may not 
outwardly mm-hmm. say they support it, but they put their name behind these bills. Yeah. So I well, question their of, moderate a lot uh, of people platitudes say to jump in quite a bit. A, little bit. Yeah. a lot of people, like this polls really well. And so yeah. I just feel like a lot of Dems or politicians in general feel like this is a like kind of a win-win because sure. they look at the polls and they see, oh, like most of my constituents probably want this. But again, they probably want this because they don't understand what it is. Yeah. Right. They think right. that there's no background check system in place. And they don't understand that further uh, further laws already placed atop these laws would do nothing. It, a lot of the studies show time and time again, even from untraditional or not even friendly sources show that any further addition of background checks doesn't stop a lot of mass shootings because there's failure, let's say in the instance of Parkland, of local police to respond to 30 right. calls of factors. crazy there's kids doing crazy stuff or social media warnings. And also, right. right. A right. lot can only and do so much. Laws are meant to be broken, unfortunately. down to a gun and store the- and like voluntarily subject themselves to a background check. No. No, a lot of the times, no one, that new DOJ study actually revealed that 90% of criminals polled tend to get their guns by illegal means. They admitted they didn't really go to a gun store, uh, gun show to buy a gun. They didn't go to uh, the gun stores to do it. They did it through illegal means or through the black market. The gun show, that, So that completely invalidates the whole gun show loophole argument and also the, pri- I'm sorry, private sales. They didn't, uh, what, what was revealed from the study, I want to correct myself, is uh, that they don't go to gun shows to purchase them, and they also don't do it through private sales. So a lot of the times, the gun control advocates will say that, look at this gun show loophole, you have to change it, or look at these private sales, you have to do this. Uh, we had some bills banning private, further eroding uh, private sales in Virginia, which were defeated um, as well. But it's it's just, it goes after, their efforts go after where crime does not happen much. And again, and much of this crime is right. done outside of the context of the law. It's, it supersedes law. And um, again, it's a failure yeah. of people understanding what happens at a gun show. Most gun purchases, even private sales, are subjected to going through an FFL or a federal, uh, federal firearm license dealer. And you have to do that whenever you, when I got my first gun, even though my dad bought it on my behalf for my birthday, I still had to subject myself to a background check. Mm-hmm. The the owner of the gun has to do the same thing too, even if you're not directly purchasing. My dad did too when he purchased one for himself. And when he did, the FBI had asked him, Sir, what where is Lithuania? Where you're from? And I'm like, so like so see, the government has a lot of failures. I mean, he they gave him the gun, obviously, and he passed the check, but it took longer than it needed to because a lot of these people don't know if they ignore these little details, they don't know what a NATO country is they gloss over, let's say, like the Sutherland Spring shooter who had a lot of domestic violence charges against him and the Air Force did not warn the FBI or relate yeah, to them yeah. that that happened. So that's a governmental failure or it's a government ignorance failure. Uh, a lot of the FBI agents are, obviously, we see in the news, a lot of corruption. And it doesn't surprise me they don't know basic facts of friendly countries <laughs> or they, they don't pay attention to people who are actually mm-hmm. potential criminals or would be criminals. They they they're selectively pick and choose, unfortunately, or they don't. They're careless. They're not really that bright and smart as they should be. And it's pretty dangerous to think that that someone who is perhaps working on crime to combat crime or processing background checks doesn't know good from bad or ignores bad people. That's problematic too. 
So that's why improvements, let's say, to the NICS system are welcomed and why people want that. They, I think just enforcing a lot of these laws, you would fix all these problems. And people say, well, that's a cliche answer, but it's the truth. Mm-hmm. You see, if it's, it's an enforcement issue, a lot of these things would have been dealt with or mitigated a lot of these instances and these unfortunate mass shootings if people right. paid attention to like, yeah, the suspects like in those cases. Crime, in the Parkland you know, like where yeah. most of the um, gun-related crimes happen. Yes. If, if gun crimes are actually prosecuted and people right. had to serve time for them and not just get like plead out, yeah, right. then, then that, you know, that's, that's an yeah. enforcement issue right there, like, which yeah. is what you're talking about. Yeah, they get lesser sentences, uh, compa- and, and although you see people with just mere drug possession, and, and that's not something to condone, but in the frame of uh, prosecution and charges, it's really weird that people who are just in possession of drugs get harsher know, penalties than those who commit gun crimes or who steal guns or commit uh, assault and robbery and, and using guns. Yeah, they're, they're usually not, and it's funny because you see gun controllers say, you got to get rid of the guns, but then they, you, they fall, uh, any of these calls fall on deaf ears when you talk about prosecuting criminals. They don't want to go after these people who use guns for bad purposes. Mm-hmm. And that's pretty hypocritical <laughs> and uh, paradoxical in the grand scheme of things that they're not serious about combating crime. That, that's with many issues, unfortunately. You see this across different issues, especially in the gun issue. They're not serious about combating crime. They just want to make right. law-abiding gun owners criminals which would be disastrous for this country. This is not how we were founded. Uh, we have the right to keep and bear arms legally and safely. And yeah, if you make criminals yeah, of more, the law abiding, you're just going to create are, chaos in know, this country. And we don't need that. Police, police already have a backlog. You talk to any, any police department and rep- and individual mm-hmm. cops from there, they already have to deal with enough crime here in Alexandria. It's a pretty safe city, but one of my neighbors is a cop and he's told me like, we want to respond to actual crimes, yeah. especially, you know, that, that crazy shooting that happened just not too far from all of us in the DC Metro area. That yeah. was about eight miles from my house when Steve Scalise was shot, but thankfully he survived. So like they, they want to respond to those instances where immediate help is needed, where their efforts have to be focused. They don't want to have yeah, to, they're, oh, they don't want they to have to show up to you know, Amanda's pieces. house because whatever she, because uh, I make yeah. made some error with some my complaint. I, can't I don't know. Yeah, but um, yeah, yeah. In 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 an instance where what you would be doing wouldn't be criminal, but if it, if let's say a UBC law went into place or an assault weapons ban went into place under the guise of banning AR-15s or even a handgun ban went into place, that would criminalize a lot of people who should otherwise not be criminalized. And again, that takes away resources, time from people actually solving and combating crime, right. especially law so, enforcement okay, or private investigators or whatever. Um, just to kind of wrap everything up, um, if you had yeah. to pick one thing that you thought was like the biggest misconception, or or hold on, let me put it this way: one thing that you think the media or gun control supporters get wrong about gun rights, what would you say? Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, or like one misconception. Oh, sorry about that. What do you? Sorry, wish? you broke oh, out a little I'll bit. I'll this way. There's so many misconceptions out there. We've talked about that uh, about when it comes to gun oh. owners and gun ownership. So, like, what do you wish? Oh, yes. What one thing do you wish the media understood about gun owners in, in, in America that they don't understand? 
Yeah. I wish they would understand that we're not the enemy. We want to work with them to ensure that their reporting is accurate. We are your neighbors, we're your sisters, brothers, mothers, spouses, significant others. We're Mm -hmm. people just like you. We're not inhuman. And we want to go about our lives. We want to enjoy our avocado toast. We want to enjoy bacon and eggs. We want to enjoy everything like everyone does. (laughs) We want to have rosé. We want to do this. Like I'm just like most other young professionals. I like the outdoors a little more enthusiastically than some others, but I enjoy the city life when I have to. I like going into DC to nice restaurants and enjoying a great steak or enjoying lamb chops or something of another. I think a lot of us are just like everyone else, even those who don't partake in shooting sports or who are not gun owners. We enjoy the same things. We enjoy the same freedoms. We view things differently in a different lens. We don't view everyone as an enemy or someone who has to be defeated as an opponent. I look at people as individuals and if someone doesn't agree with my lifestyle, that's fine. I don't get upset. It hurts me sometimes that I can't have friends of other political views. I used to have liberal, more liberal friends. I have a few still today or libertarian friends and and people who may disagree with me here and there on certain things and have different perspectives, but I can't have ardently liberal or very far left friends just because there's nothing that really binds us together. People who are just so vociferously anti-gun. It's just very hard to talk to many of them. But there are people in the middle who may not be invested one way or another, which are easy to talk to, and centrists or moderates or people who are just ambivalent. And I think there's just that misconception that uh, people who own guns are Elmer Fudd types. They are not intelligent, which is so false. There's so many smart people and a lot of innovations and business and, and so much that goes into people who own it. And Again, they're regular people. Basically, gun owners. We're just like everyone else. Exactly. It is true. We, we're we not yeah. bloodthirsty. We're not like vampires. We're not, we're not cold, heartless people that just want to make exactly. money. Exactly. We're a lot of fun. We're a lot of fun. I wish gun manufacturers had money to pay us. But Dude, they don't. <laughs> but, but the thing is, uh, people forget that it's it's a industry like anything else. I think... Uh, People are quick to criticize them and oil and gas and oil and gas sadly get subsidies, but not everyone in oil and gas is evil. But you find a lot of corrupt people in renewable energies. How come energy companies, why aren't they held to account or other really suspects industries? Every industry can be called out, can be questioned, can have individual players criticized Mm -hmm. uh, for that. So depending upon your worldview, it'll be, it'll be uh, relegated like that. But I think, I think the perception that you don't know a gun owner is patently false. Everyone knows a gun owner. Some people say, well, I know someone who owns guns and therefore I'm for gun control, which I think is a misassociated argument. It's not fully thought out, unfortunately, because if they talked to that individual or their relative more, they would understand and hear them out and be more open-minded to the idea. Not exactly in favor of, you know, concealed carry or private ownership, but at least hear them out and say like, I'm sympathetic and not run back to the argument, but we need to get rid of this, right? Because it's a, yeah. it's, it's incomplete. It's not uh, reflective of gun ownership, and a lot of people just like to exploit that. Say, I know someone who does this, or I grew up around guns, but I believe you have to ab- abandon semi-automatic firearms and semi and fully automatic. Which again, f- most fully automatic guns are illegal to possess. <laughs> you can't have that. I know. But, but again, it's, it's it's using that argument. I grew up around this, but then those exceptions come into play. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. That was an amazing conversation. I could listen um, to you talking about this for forever. 
Gabrielle. So thanks for being here tonight. I really appreciate it. Yeah, no problem. Thank you ladies for having me. There's, I feel like I could touch upon so much more if we had more time. So anytime I you need me to help you with anything, I'm happy to revisit and chat with you guys more. But it's such an important conversation. It's good that more women are having this conversation, especially during Women's History Month, because we matter too. Oh, yeah. uh, the independent thinkers have a say as well. And um, it's important we have this, not just beyond the, or not just this month, but beyond this month too. And I think we're going to hear more women talk about gun ownership and hunting and other outdoor stuff too. Yeah.